Hey, uh, sad story. In, in 2009, a woman, 37 years old, by the name of Kelly Waltz of Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, she lost her life to her pet brown uh, black bear, actually black bear. And uh, what she had done is she went into the cage to clean this cage. She had other exotic animals, you know, you know lion, tigers, you know, black bears. And um, she went, went into the cage to uh, clean it and feed it. And she was feeding this thing dog food. And she turned her back on the bear and it attacked her and it, and it mauled her to death. And her mistake was that she caught too comfortable with this bear. And she let down her guard and forgot that this was a wild animal, not really a domesticated pet. And she forgot that the bear's authentic nature was that of an untamed creature. And she let uh, herself lose an appropriate fear of it and respect for it, and it cost her her life. And it's a sad story. Here's, Here's another sad reality and scary thing. We tend to do the same thing when it comes to God. We get too comfortable with God. He becomes an idea. He becomes a topic of conversation. He becomes a religion to follow. He becomes the big man upstairs. He becomes the do-gooding grandfather in the sky that's just there to give us what we want. He becomes uh, the God of our own making or our own ideology instead of uh, who he really is. And we make him this domesticated deity rather than the untamable, holy creator, uh, maintainer of all things, who's righteous and who's powerful and who, ha- who has both love and justice flowing from his nature. And we become casual in our view of him. And then all of a sudden it's days and days and days that go by that we don't think about the Lord. Days and days and days that go by, we don't talk to the Lord, we don't spend time with the Lord. And the, the, the more distance that we put between us and the Lord, the easier it is for us to sin. And then we start to get comfortable with our sin. And sin starts to erode our relationships. It attacks our joy, attacks our peace, attacks our hope. And eventually uh, our fear of God is mauled by where we find ourselves in relation to viewing our sin, and we're no longer living in a spiritually authentic way with the Lord, and we no longer have a fear of the Lord. I'm going to use the, the word spiritual authenticity several times today. When I say that, I want you to know what I mean by that. I mean, uh, when I say spiritually authentic, I'm talking about those who are followers of Jesus, who claim to be followers of Jesus, to genuinely live as followers of Jesus. We're not talking about just a Christian image. We're talking about a Christian identity, that we know the Lord, love the Lord, and follow him authentically. Because God's purposes are fulfilled through these spiritually authentic people, and those spiritually authentic people will have a healthy fear of God. When we tend to spiritually doze off, and we forget that God is a holy God, He tends to shock us awake every now and then with the reality of who he is so that we can get back to a place of spiritual authenticity and live with a fear of him, an appropriate fear of him. And that's exactly the case of the passage we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 5. I invite you to turn in your Bibles right now with me to Acts chapter 5. This is one of the most bizarre, shocking, troubling, and thought-provoking passages in the Bible. It's where a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, members in the brand new first century church, forget to live with the appropriate fear of God 
and they slip into a place of spiritual inauthenticity, and God makes an example of them. And so turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 5 as we continue in our series called Empowered through the book of Acts. And we're just going to look at these first 16 verses in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to just teach through them, stopping at moments and unpacking some of what we see. Acts chapter 5 verse 1 says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Just a little reminder of the context of what has taken place leading up to this moment. As you read through the first four chapters of the book of Acts, you see the early church being established. And you see, uh, man, a spirit of love and a spirit of unity and a spirit of generosity flowing through the church. And people are selling their stuff and bringing it together and giving to those who have need. As you look at the end of chapter 4, a specific man was mentioned, Barnabas. This man Barnabas sold his field, and he brought it and laid it at the feet of the apostles. And he was known as the son of encouragement and obviously made a great impression, and people knew about it. And he did that authentically. He just wanted to make a difference. He wanted to contribute. So when Ananias came to Peter, I mean, we don't know exactly how Peter knew that Ananias was lying. I mean, really, ultimately, we land on the fact that there was probably a supernatural revealing through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think that Peter pulled up his laptop and looked at Zillow and tried to, you know, see what, you know, Ananias sold the property for. The Holy Spirit let Peter know somehow. And so uh, the issue that Peter was bringing with Ananias is that he wasn't bringing his gifts with pure motives, he was trying to look spiritual, but he wasn't trying to be spiritual. And so he and Sapphira became more interested in appearance than reality. They became more interested in uh, the image of looking generous. Maybe after seeing what happened with Barnabas, they thought, well, man, we want to be looked at like that. And so let's, let's do the same thing, but we'll hold back the money. Whatever it was, they devised this plan to look good in the eyes of others, to get notoriety, or maybe there was just greed in the mix, whatever it was. But that's interesting because the property was theirs, the money was theirs, there was, there was no mandate to sell your stuff and bring everything. Uh, they could have sold the property and said, hey, we sold property, here's, here's half of it. But they, they twisted it. And they pretended to bring a whole offering when in reality it was only parts. You know, last week we saw that the apostles Peter and John um, were bold in their speaking. And this week we see that Ananias and Sapphira were bold in their sin. And there's also a little embedded encouragement even in this because oftentimes when we look at the New Testament church, we look at it through a lens of a, a romanticized view. Man, the, the church in the book of Acts was amazing. Like, like, just think about if I wish our church was like that, and we do. It's like, man, the church was perfect and everybody was giving and everybody loved each other. And it's just a reminder that the church is full of people, right? And even the early church had flaws. And so there's this rude awakening that right out of the gate, sin has entered the camp. And God dealt with that sin. And I think we uh, are aware that there will always be fakes. There will always be those who look authentic but aren't authentic. That on the outside look the part, but on the inside there's something completely different. Uh, my kids have been loving playing this game lately, and some of you may know it, especially if you have kids. It's called Bean Boozle, okay? 
being boozled. And some of you are already going, ugh, okay? Um, how many of you uh, like jelly bellies, all right? Any jelly belly lovers out there? These, these are jelly bellies, right? And so what it is is, uh, you, you go through this pack, and there's all these jelly bellies. Uh, I'll pull this one out. The authentic jelly belly that's this color is actually peach flavor. This is a peach jelly belly. But what uh, the jelly belly company did is it said, let's make one that looks identical, but it's not peach. Instead, it's going to taste like vomit. <laughs> Seriously. Like, you, okay, let's see. We've got, we've got uh, peach or vomit. Uh, the black one is either licorice or skunk spray. Um, the the all-colored one is either tutti fruity or stinky socks. Um, you know, the buttered popcorn or the rotten egg, you know, chocolate pudding or canned dog food. Um, I'm just trying to figure out the poor guy that had to test these things. You know, it's like, hey man, how's that one? Tastes just like a stinky sock. I'm like, how, how do you know that? <laughs> this one tastes just like skunk spray. That had to be a really good paying job, I hope. Um, here's the thing. We do the same thing. We can look the same on the outside. We look the part. We look Christian, if you will. Go to church, read the Bible, raise our hands around worship. We can even speak it. The outside looks good, but is it authentic? Is it real? Is it genuine? When the Lord bites into us, if you will, what is the flavor that he really gets? Do you look the part? Is it authentic? Or is it completely different? And there's a nastiness embedded, hidden underneath the surface. And this was Ananias and Sapphira. And they wanted to look like the real thing, but inside the flavor was nasty and the flavor was distorted. And we all can do the same thing so easily. Every weekend across the world, there are people that step into church buildings with no interest in being spiritually authentic, but they're just trying to look, look spiritual, look religious, pretending to bring the whole lives to worship God, but only offering God part of their lives. We would never do that, would we? We would never say, God, I, I, I would give you all of me, but hold any back. We would never be guilty of such a thing, would we? We are. And so we see that Ananias lied to himself. He deceived himself to think that he could trick God and that he can get away with a sin undetected. But God knows our deepest thoughts. God sorts truth from um, falsehood. You know, in Psalm 44, 21, it reminds us, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And those are sobering verses, and there's many, many like those in God's Word. And we're reminded that God loves to use spiritually authentic people to fulfill His purposes, but those spiritually authentic people are going to live with a healthy, real fear of God in their lives. And Ananias and Sapphira put themselves in a place where they got too comfortable, and they lost that fear. Look what happens as we continue on in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out to be buried. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, where you sold, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's that porch we talked about a few weeks ago. 
None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high regard, in high, high esteem, I mean. You look at the situation and go, God killed Ananias and Sapphira. This is one of those passages that, you know, we just love to preach. You know, hey, welcome to church, by the way. These people lied and God killed them. All right, have a great week, you know. Um, was this too harsh of God? Was this too severe? Did, did, did God totally overreact in the situation? And here's the thing. Our reaction to reading this, our reaction to hearing this reveals our personal level of fear of God and also reveals our image of who God is. And just reading this and how we interact with that in our spirit. Is God a holy, righteous God or not? Is he offended by sin or not? Or have we turned him into our own domesticated pet? We're so weird. We look at these passages and we give God praise. Look at, man, God's so awesome. Look at the miracles. Like he's healing people and he's, he's doing all these miracles and his supernatural power is doing this and supernatural power is doing all. We love God. And then we have this stark reality that God kills people and then we criticize. Well, I don't know, man. I don't know about this God. Um, I don't know. This is really hard for me to digest. He, you know, he did something that's kind of negative. You know, if you're familiar with the story of Job, here's the man that God allowed to lose everything. He lost his, his wealth, his family. He, he lost his own health. He's sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping sores on his skin. Uh, his wife comes to him and says, basically, you're a loser. Curse God and die. And he's like, thanks, honey. And, and then he says something in Job 2.10. He says, shall we receive good from God and not bad? And I think we've convinced ourselves the answer is yes. We should only receive good from God. Who taught us that? Where did that come from? How is that biblical? That we'll be shielded from all negativity and all uh, discomfort. And there's, there's maturity in this. And so we have said, yes, that a God who is benevolent should be a God who is only benevolent. But that's not a biblical reality of who God is. We forget that a healthy and holy fear of God is part of worship. Fear of God deepens worship. You can't separate a, a, a fear of God from devotion to God. The reason some of us wander spiritually is we don't fear God. We don't see him for who he really is. We've domesticated him in our mind. When we talk about this word fear, let's, let's talk about that a little bit and clarify it. Um, the word fear, basically, you're going to find two kinds of fear in the Bible. The first fear is the fear of God. The second fear is the fear of everything else. <laughs> and when you see God's teaching on fear all through Scripture, here's basically what God says. Fear me, but don't fear anything else. All the other stuff you're afraid of, don't be afraid of it. But have a fear of me. And when we look at this word fear in the original language, we, we understand it's not merely a respect. Some people try to take the fangs out of fear and say, well, when we talk about fear of God, it just means to respect God and to admire him. That's not a robust enough definition. That's not a thorough enough definition. Fear means fear. The Greek word here is the word phobos. It's where we get the word phobia. We're not supposed to be, you know, have a phobia of God by any means, but when you dig deeper into the definition, it's a fear. There's dread, there's terror, there's an alarm, and there's reverence. We can't take the uneasiness out of the word fear. We can't domesticate it. Fear is fear. And the beauty of fearing God is that it's this, it's this mixture of awe and intimacy. When we fear God, we're very aware of his power and his wrath and his justice, 
but we don't have anxiety over God's power. Not that kind of fear. You know, a lot of times, and I do this, we, we go into our father mode because we see, you know, God is our heavenly father, the perfect father, the one who never abuses, never misuses his authority, even here when this is holy, righteous judgment. And I think about the, the men in my life that I, that I feared. And there's two that come to the top of the list. I, I feared my dad. I feared my dad because he had the power to harm, you know? And um, his favorite weapon of choice was the belt. I don't know if anyone's got the belt growing up, but I got the belt, all right? And, and many other things. He was very varied in his discipline, and sometimes it was sentences, sometimes it was chores, sometimes, you know, whatever. But the belt was his go-to, all right? And so if I did something wrong, I could just hear the sound of that leather coming out of the loops. You know what I'm talking about? And a little clanking of the buckle coming down the hall, and I was scared, because he wielded a power to try to discipline me into appropriate behavior. So there was that kind of fear. But then I had a spiritual mentor and a, a, a father to me. Some of you have actually heard him. He came several years ago. His name's Ken Silva. He was like my, my, my pastor, spiritual dad, mentor. I was a little afraid of him too, but it was a different kind of fear. I was afraid to disappoint him. I was afraid to um, dishonor him and his investment in my life. I, I was afraid of offending him. And so when I think about a fear of God, I kind of put those two together that when we fear God, it's like he's capable of disciplining and he has power that he can wield when necessary. But there's also like, God, I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to dishonor you. God, I don't want to offend you. It's kind of a blend of these things. You know, God is wonderful and God is comforting and God is loving and God can be frightening Hebrews 10.31 says that. It says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we forget that. Ananias and Sapphira forgot that. And they found them in a place of forgetting God. And so they brought this false offering. But wasn't this harsh? Wasn't this a harsh thing for God to do in this moment? Why now? It was the timing. This was a, a formative time in the brand new church. This isn't the only event of its nature. God, at different times in the formative moments of his people, um, would do things. If you were to go back to the book of Leviticus, for example, Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus 10, uh, the, the people of God have you know, fled miraculously out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness. They just came off of the mount uh, with the law. And now God has given them instructions to build a temporary and mobile temple, a tabernacle. And God said, I'm going to allow my presence to dwell there. So the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And he gave specific instructions of how the, the fire and the offerings and all the things should happen. He laid it out. And we see that a couple men forgot who God was and took it upon themselves to do something different out of fear uh, or a lack of fear of God. And so we see here that two boys, the sons of Aaron, who was a high priest, if you look at Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 5, it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered it unauthorized before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. These guys took it upon themselves, they got casual, they got cavalier, they domesticated God in their mindset, we're going to create our own rules, create our own fire, we're going to offer it before the Lord, and in this formative moment, with this brand new tabernacle, to establish worship, God says, uh-uh, not going to happen. And he righted the wrong right from the beginning 
of this new era for the church. We see it again later when David was king, king of Israel, and the Philistines were subdued, and, and David uh, moved the capital to, to Jerusalem. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant was the, the power and the, the symbol of God's presence. And so they got the Ark of God, and they were going to move it to the capital where they're going to build a new temple eventually. And you see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, another incident in this formative moment of God's people. It says they carried the Ark of God on a new cart, which, by the way, God had spelled out previously to that. The only way to carry the Ark was through poles, no one's ever to touch it, and only the priests were to carry it. Well, now we see it's on a cart, towed by ox, okay, a couple oxen. And so they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, not Ohio, a little clarification there, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This is a big, joyful parade, right? And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Think about it. The ark representing the power and presence of God, hiding away in this house, now being moved to the capital. You know, Uzzah probably was familiar with it, had seen it before. They put it on a cart. They're, they're, they're walking, and this thing stumbles, and he just reaches out and touches it, and God takes his life. There's moments when God will interrupt our reality and say, don't forget who I am. And don't forget that I'm holy and I'm righteous and I'm capable of wrath and I'm capable of justice just as much as I'm capable of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Don't presume my grace. Obviously, because of the formative time, great fear came upon you. You go back to Acts chapter 5, verse 5 talks about a great fear came upon people. Acts, and verse 11, it talks about a great fear came over the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 13 talks about no one dared join them. Meaning that, it doesn't mean that people didn't because we see multitudes did. What it means is, don't just sign up thinking you're going to fake it. If you say you're going to follow Jesus, you better be all in. That's what was going on. People realized this was not something you played with to identify as a follower of Christ. I know we, we sit here, and, and we're not near the apostolic age and the uniqueness of that age, and, and we look at the, the hypocrisy that exists now. We look at the, the cavalier attitude to worshiping God that exists now. And it's very easy for us to think that, oh, God's not going to take care of it. We, we presume his grace. You know, a, a great story by uh, pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul uh, in his book, The Holiness of God, which I highly recommend. This is a great read. Um, in that book, he tells a story about one of the seasons where he was a professor. And he was teaching a class of 250 freshmen, an Old Testament class. And uh, in the first day of the class, he said to them, there's going to be three papers in this class. Here's their due dates. And if you show up with your paper late, you get an F. It's automatic. No questions asked. So, first paper came due a month later. Out of the 250 students, 225 showed up with a paper. 25 didn't have it. And it was like, oh, you know, Professor Sproul, like, you know, we're still kind of adjusting from high school. This is a lot of work. We weren't really ready. Could we please get an extension? And he graciously gave him three more days. So, okay, I'll give you three more days. 
The next month, second paper was due. 200 students showed up with their paper. 50 did not. You see where this is going? <laughs> oh, Professor Sprouse, midterms, we, we just weren't anticipating the load from all the classes, and my paper got kind of squeezed out. Just, would you please just give us an extension? We'll take care of it. Okay, fine. I'll give you three more days. I'll give you three days. That's it. Third paper due the next month. 100 students showed up with the paper. 150 did not. And he saw this, and all of a sudden he just picked up his book, his grade book, and he got out the red pen. And he started calling names. Is your paper? Do you have your paper? No. F. Do you have your paper? No. F. The class started kind of rumbling. And one of these students, Lavery, shouted out. He goes, that's not fair. Oh, Lavery. Oh, wait, that's not fair? You want justice? Okay. Didn't you turn your paper in late last time? Yeah, I didn't give you an F. You know what? I'm going to go in back, and I'm going to give you an F for that paper, because that's what you should have got the first time. And Lavery's like, oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. It's all It's all good. See, what happened was those students started to presume on the grace of the professor. The professor stated the rule up front. He stated the consequences. He's got the freedom to extend grace. He also has the freedom to establish and operate off what he said. What I love about what Sproul said is he connected this to our view of the grace of God and his patience and his anger. He said he is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he's so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we're shocked and offended by it. And we forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. Isn't that true? We delude ourselves into thinking that God either doesn't care about it or that he's powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolts. He's referencing Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, God speaks to the Apostle Paul, and he tells us in verses 4 and 5, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just let that sink in. We sin every day. We don't see people dying because they told a lie. We don't see people dying every time they sin or mess up or lust or cheat or whatever they're doing. So does God not care? Have we domesticated him in our mind? If you understand this passage, this is what it's saying. God is not ignoring sin. He's allowing it to accumulate. He's storing it up for the final day of wrath. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I get a little bit scared. And for those of us who don't know and don't, know, and don't love Jesus, what that means is all the sins that we're committing with our hard hearts and our shaking of the fist of God, saying God's not there, God doesn't care, God's not going to deal with it. You've just got this bank account you're not aware of that's just accumulating this deficit that one day, whether Jesus splits the sky and comes to meet you face to face, or whether you die and go to meet him, one day the bill's going to be put on the table and you got to pay. And so that motivates us to get right with God while we still can. His patience is, is for repentance. God's giving you this window to repent and to come to him out of fear and desire to be loved and to love him and, and to enter into a relationship with him out of fear that you don't want to offend him anymore and out of eternal separation from him in hell. 
And for those of us who do know Jesus and who do love Jesus, we look at this and we're reminded of the cost of the cross. God's grace is so good to us. But it wasn't cheap grace. He, he paid that bill for all of us. And then we just say, thank you, and then we go do what we want to do. That doesn't make any sense. And so it drives us and motivates us to live in obedience and to live out of love and to say, God, we don't, want, we don't want to dishonor the blood that was shed for us. Sin is an abuse of grace. And it just calls us back to a place of being repentant. We come before God on a regular basis saying, God, I know I'm forgiven for this, but I lay this before you. You know, this year, we've, we've focused on spiritual growth. Be a disciple and grow other disciples. If we don't have a fear of God, if we're not spiritually authentic, we're not going to grow. And we're sure not going to help anyone else grow. And whatever we try to grow and whatever state we're in, I don't want that fruit. And so we have to keep coming back to this place of fear of God. When's the last time When's the last time you just had a heart-to-heart with God and laid it all out? And just said, these are my secret sins, Lord. You know them already. I just haven't voiced them. I haven't vocalized them. When's the last time God put something on your heart to go before a brother and sister and say, I need you to pray for me because i got stuff going on in my life right now and nobody knows. Or I'm just, I'm just a slave to this sin right now and everybody knows. I just want to be authentic. I just want to love Jesus with everything I have and, and fight this with it in the light, to bring it to light. See, God wants to use spiritually authentic people to fulfill his purposes, but those spiritually authentic people will have a f- healthy fear of God in their lives. You, you don't separate God's purposes from his holiness and his righteousness and the fear of God. And we see that take place. Look at, look at uh, verses 14 through 16. What happens after the death of Ananias and Sapphira? Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Let's just stop there. Does that even make sense in our human brains? God takes out two people and more people sign up. <sighs> That's awesome. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God pruned out that sin and hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira on the front end. What was the result? Growth. Growth. If you prune out that sin in your life, You'll grow. And the people who you want to help grow will grow because you can invest with authenticity. And God's purposes right here were being fulfilled. Salvation, healings, uh, God's kingdom was growing. It was a beautiful thing. And here's the sad thing. Ananias and Sapphira missed out. They, they were within this community and they could have rode this way. They could have been part of all these things going on and, and been part of everything that was going on. And because of their sin, and because of their selfishness, and because of their hypocrisy, because of being inauthentic and because of their lack of fear of God, they got taken out and they missed it all. I don't know about you, but it's like, man, look at what God's doing. I don't want to get taken out. I don't want to be put on the bench. I want to be used for his purposes. 
I don't want to be taken out early. I want, to, I want to be like Peter and John and the rest of the disciples that they saw the mighty hand of God moving and all the beautiful things that were being done and, and God got to use them to be part of that. I'm going, that's the win. Not coming to God going, I look like this, but I'm really this. I want to tell you that I'm going to give you my all, but I'm really going to hold back part for me. Man, if we don't fear God, we'll do that quick. And we won't be authentic spiritually. Here's what I want to do to just transition to how to apply this to our life. It's, it's always a heavy thing to talk about repentance and sin and fear of God. It's uncomfortable, but shouldn't it be? It should be a, a good reminder for us that we don't live in, in, in a cowering, paranoid fear that God's going to smite us. We live in this awareness that his wrath is real, just as real as his love, and his discipline and justice is just as real as his mercy and grace. And because of his wrath and justice aimed at us, and because of the cross of Christ, where Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, shielding us from that, if we believe in Jesus, we just look at his love and mercy and grace and are so much more appreciative of it. But we have to evaluate our life. And so I have some questions I just want you to think about. I just want you to think about some questions. Here's some questions. Where are you casual about God rather than reverent? Where have you domesticated God in your mind? And now you're more casual about him than you are reverent. What choices are you making right now that show that you've lost the fear of God? What addictions, what sins, what behaviors, what attitudes, what activities, what company are you keeping, how you spend in your money, how you spend in your time, how you spend in the gifts that God's given you, are they showing that you have the fear of God in your life? I want to talk to couples for a second. Dating, engaged, married, whatever. Check this out. Ananias and Sapphira had agreement about what they did, but what they agreed about violated God's issue. Are you as a couple in agreement what you're doing, but what you've agreed upon is a violation of what God's called you to? Because if you want God to bless your relationship, you want to grow, do it God's way, not your way. Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to do it their way. It didn't work out so good. Do it God's way. How am I trying to maintain a spiritual image without actually being real? What secret sins are causing me not to be authentic? Years ago, I, I had this secret sin in my life that was eating me up. Just something I'd done. And uh, it, it just was something, it wasn't on a huge magnitude, huge, but it was, it was troublesome to me. And I prayed and said, God, you know, forgive me. But he kept, he kept vexing me with it. And I knew, I knew what he wanted. It's amazing how we just kind of go, la, 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 you know. <laughs> he wanted me to get it into the light. He wanted me to verbalize it to a brother in Christ. Just to... Just to be freed from it by releasing it verbally, by saying, this is something I'm struggling with. This is something I did. And I was at this retreat, and there was a moment where they just had a prayer time. And uh, there was just a couple of prayer partners. And, and I knew, I said, oh, Lord, I know what you're doing to me. I didn't know any of these people. These were complete strangers, you know. And so during time of worship and prayer, I just, I knew. And all right, Lord, <laughs> I give up. I went down to this complete stranger and said, I need to talk to you, bro. There's <laughs> something I've done in my life. God's bugging me about it. I know I'm just supposed to speak it out. Would you just pray for me? And you know what? I left that retreat free. And I actually entered into a season of, of growth in my life after that. God grew me after that. 
That's some of you right now. You're carrying something, and God just says, you need to get it out. It's holding you hostage. And so here's, here's what I invite you guys to do today as we wrap it up. All of you have a card. It looks like this. This card is between you and God. It's empty. This is an invitation, not obligation. But maybe some of the answers that you would come up with on these questions, maybe you've identified something. Maybe God has identified it in your life. I encourage you to, with courage and with boldness, find a pen next to you, write it down. What is that secret sin? What is that, what is that attitude? What is that action? What is, what is it that's keeping you from fearing God, keeping you from being authentic? Write it down. and you know, I, would, I would just fold that up. As we worship, man, I would just hold that. And I would release it today in prayer. We've got baskets out at the foot of the cross. It's, it's Lenten season. It's time as we approach Easter and the, celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. That you know, We've just laid things on Christ. So if on your way out, you can just drop those in the, in the basket. It's just kind of a prayer as, a, as an offering. Lord, this has been holding me back, but as of today, no more. As of today, no more. I'm just dropping it in this basket. It's a symbol of me wanting to live in more fear of you, more authenticity. Maybe some of you are like, I need to probably get that out in the light. Well, maybe you've got a very strong Christian brother and sister that you need to talk to in the next 60 minutes after this. So I need to talk to you. I need, I need someone to pray for me. I need to get this into the light. We'll have a couple friends back in the prayer cove. They'll be there available. <laughs> just walk over to one of them and go, I don't know you. But I just need to pray for me. Here's what's in my life. And just let them pray for you. I want to be used for God's purposes. I believe you want to be used for God's purposes. We got to be spiritually authentic if that's going to happen. And if we're going to be spiritually authentic, we have to live with the fear of God in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder of Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, you hold all things in your hand. Lord, if you choose to take two <laughs> so that the, the, the whole will be stronger, Lord, that, that's your prerogative. We don't question you. And God, we declare you are holy and you are righteous and you are just. You are God and we are not. So I pray for my brothers and sisters right now, Lord, whatever might be in their life that's a, an attitude, an action, a sin that's holding them back from growing, that's holding them back from fearing you the way they need to, Lord, out of conviction through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do a work in their life today? And Lord, for the men and women who might be here or watching that don't know you as Savior, Lord, may this fear of you lead them today to the cross of Jesus. And if that's you today, you need to come to Christ and you just need to say, God, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I don't fear you, I've domesticated you, but today I come to you and I want to follow you. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I believe he rose from the grave to show victory and power over sin and death. And I believe that right now and I come to Jesus in faith. God, take our lives, make them yours. For your glory, for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.